70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hello, greetings from Hanin Saleh from Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Happy 70th birthday, KBS World Radio. I wish the channel the best of luck in all its future endeavors. To tell you a little bit about myself, I fell in love with Korean culture as I started to tune in to KBS channels when I was 13 years old. You helped me understand Korea and the Korean culture better and I started to build a strong relationship with the country. Last year, I won an award from Yala K-pop, a K-pop contest hosted by KBS World Radio's Arabic service, and got to visit Korea for a performance. Guess who I got to meet there? The Arabic service staff members. They were such wonderful people and gave me the warmest welcome. I was so happy to meet them. They were the best out of all the people I met in Korea. Once again, happy birthday, KBS World Radio. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. the 6th of November and welcome to a new week here on Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. An eight-month ban on short-selling began today after financial regulators announced the move on Sunday. This led to stocks surging 5.6%. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. The government recently announced plans to greatly increase visa issuances to migrant workers in a bid to address the country's labour supply issue. We find out more for our in-depth today. And coming up for Monday's Sports Roundup, we preview the Korean series, discuss Kim Ha-sung's Gold Glove Award and Poha Stealing's FA Cup win. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. The government announced on Sunday that it would ban short-selling until the end of June next year and that it would come into force the next day. The ban took effect today and it was applied to all equities on the main COSPI as well as COSDAC and CONEX markets. The Financial Services Commission cited the discovery of widespread illegal short-selling by global investment banks and institutions for this ban, raising concerns that the practice has undermined the formation of fair prices. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio now Kim Min-kyung, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service. In-kyung, hello. Hello, jang So let's start at the beginning. For those listeners who aren't familiar, what does short-selling actually mean? Short-selling is a trading technique in which a trader borrows shares from a broker and immediately sells them with the expectation that the share price will fall. When the share price falls, the trader buys the shares back and returns them to the broker while pocketing the difference minus any loan interest. Right, so to give an example, suppose company 
A's stock market costs one million one. You borrow the stock and immediately sell, getting one million one. A week later, the stock falls to seven hundred thousand one. You buy back the stock, return it, and net the difference, which is three hundred thousand one. Exactly.、Uh, so this decision came quite abruptly. Why did the government decide to ban short selling then? The ban was prompted by the discovery of large-scale illegal short selling by major global investment banks, which also strengthened public support for the suspension among individual investors. On Monday, the financial services, the financial supervisory service, launched a special short selling investigation team to investigate the activity of around ten global investment banks, with plans to review effective measures to establish a real-time block system to prevent illegal naked short selling in advance, which has long been a demand of retail investors. And how did the market react to the ban today? Stock markets soared on Monday, with the benchmark Kospi jumping 5.66 percent and the tech-heavy Kostak climbing 7.34 percent. The spike in Kostak forced sidecar curbs to be activated for the first time in more than three years earlier in the day, briefly halting program trading. And I believe there has been criticism, though, of the government's decision. That's right. Critics say short selling prevents overheating in the stock market and provides liquidity, and that the ban could dampen such functions. Yes, we'll continue to watch whether the bullish market continues over the next few days. In the meantime, let's turn now to the Israel-Hamas war, because the Israeli embassy in Seoul shared a video with South Korean media outlets on Monday that appears to show atrocities committed by Hamas during the October 7th attacks. Can you tell us more? Yes, the embassy screened a 43-minute video to local outlets under the condition that it not be recorded in a move by Tel Aviv to counter what it perceives as unfair international media coverage that focuses mainly on casualties in the Gaza Strip. The video contained a compilation of videos from body cameras, mobile phones, and closed-circuit television during last month's attack, in an apparent bid to emphasize the legitimacy of ground offensives by the Israeli military amid growing criticism and calls for a ceasefire. In a briefing after the video screening, Israeli ambassador to South Korea Akiva Tor said that while Israel does not deny that the people of Gaza are suffering tremendously, only Palestinian casualties are being reported, calling for more balanced coverage by the international media. Ambassador Tor said that some Korean media called those killed in Israeli air raids victims of a massacre, while those who were killed in the Hamas attacks were only described as victims of killings. He said that Israeli embassies in other countries are also releasing the same video to local media. Meanwhile, the South Korean family who evacuated from the Gaza Strip to Egypt last week, they have now arrived back in South Korea. That's right. A South Korean woman in her 40s, identified by her surname Che, her husband and their three children, all of whom possess South Korean citizenship, took a flight from Cairo International Airport in Egypt on Sunday afternoon to head to South Korea through a stopover. Che declined the reporter's request for an interview at the Cairo airport, but her daughter, who has experience as a YouTube creator, wrote in a social media post that her relatives and friends are still lost in the Gaza Strip amid the war, and that she will continue to let the world know what is happening there. Let's shift to domestic political news now. Seoul Mayor Oh Sehun and his Kimpo counterpart Kim Byung Soo met on Monday amid the ruling party's move to incorporate the Gyeonggi Provincial City. Into the capital, can you tell us what they discussed? 
They agreed to establish a joint research body regarding the proposal. The Kimpo mayor appealed to all that should the province divide up into the north and south, as being pushed by Gyeonggi Governor Kim Dong-yeon, his city would be geographically isolated from either side. Or remained ambiguous about the plan without saying whether he supports or opposes it. Instead, he advised a detailed and objective analysis of the proposal and for the city to sufficiently address concerns raised by Kimpo residents. The two city governments are expected to launch detailed discussions on the initiative based on the outcome of a related study by the joint research body. Meanwhile, there were some developments today regarding opposition parties. Can you give us a roundup of the key developments? Six-term Democratic Party representative Park Byung-seok said he won't seek re-election next year. Park, who was Speaker of the National Assembly during the first half of the current term, said he hopes that his constituency will replace him with a new figure that has a clear calling for the times, a sense of balance and passion. The Justice Party leadership, including Chair Lee Jung-mi, stepped down en masse to take responsibility for its defeat in the by-election for Chief of Seoul's Gangseo District. After forming an emergency leadership, it plans to join forces with other progressive parties to establish a coalition party. And finally, the first cold wave alerts of this fall were issued for Seoul and the central inland regions on Monday. Can you give us an update on the weather? According to the Korea Meteorological Administration, the alerts will take effect as of 9 p.m. for Seoul's northeastern and northwestern regions and several regions in Gyeonggi province as well as sections of Gangwon, North Chungcheong and North Gyeongsang provinces. A cold wave alert is issued when the daily low temperature is expected to fall by 10 degrees Celsius or more from the previous day, while cold wave warnings are issued for a temperature difference of 15 degrees or more. Morning lows across the nation on Tuesday are forecast to range from 1 to 12 degrees Celsius, marking a drop of more than 10 degrees from Monday's morning lows. Seoul's morning low is forecast to be 3 degrees Celsius on Tuesday, with the apparent temperature expected to be even lower at minus 1 degree. Yes, so for any listeners here in Korea, do remember to wrap up warm tomorrow morning. That's what we're going to wrap it up for our news briefing. Thank you for bringing us those updates. Thanks for having me. South Korea's cratering birth rate has raised an array of social concerns, but its impact on the country's labour supply has been particularly noteworthy in the economic sector. While the UN administration has initiated several measures to address this issue, one notable policy that's been the move to bring in more foreign workers, the administration has significantly increased the maximum number of visas available to migrant workers. How effective will this move be? What are the plans is the government considering? And what further efforts need to be made to delve into these questions and more? We have joining us in the studio now Stephen Borowicz, a staff writer for Nikkei Asia based here in Seoul. He's been reporting on this issue. Mr Borowicz, hello and thank you for your time today. My pleasure. So the Union Administration has raised the maximum number of visas available for migrant workers. Can you... Tell us a bit more. Can you give us the details and what was the thinking behind it? The details are that the total number of spots allotted for workers to work mostly in manufacturing and agriculture has been, I think it's up to 110,000 for this year. And that's more than double the pre-pandemic total, which was in the kind of 50,000. 
55,000 sort of range. So along with that, there's also a lot of talk and there's some steps toward also broadening the kinds of jobs that these workers can do, not simply uh, unskilled work on, on farms or in factories, but perhaps broadening it to allowing workers from overseas to take jobs in making it easier for them to take jobs in places like restaurants or convenience stores or restaurants or, or accommodations or even uh, delivery drivers, the kind of uh, tech bay workers that we see all over the city in, in vans and on motorcycles. And I think the origins of this policy are some, it's not new in the sense that Businesses have been asking for something like this for a long time because they have been reporting labor shortages. They've been saying that it's just it's simply too hard to get South Korean nationals to work at these kinds of jobs, which are typically quite physically strenuous and uh, involve long hours and do not pay great wages. And uh, business people on the you know in agriculture or in small factories have been saying that they simply cannot survive if mm. they had to raise the the wages of these positions to a level that South Koreans would find attractive. So uh, the solution to this has been to bring in workers from elsewhere in Asia, mostly, you know, Indonesia, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, there's a, a number of other places, and employ them in these positions on a kind of temporary basis and allow them to earn more money than they would make at home and also allow these... Uh, sort of low profit margin businesses to to continue operating and as this healthcare has been doing this since uh, I think it's the early 90s and now the the unit administration seems set to accelerate this pretty substantially so that was the the theme that I, I recently reported on right so you're saying that there's already uh, a shortage of labor and so it was the government responded to calls from the business sector that has led to this, uh, particularly in the wake of the country's declining population as well. Is this new figure of 110,000 now, is this being seen as enough or do you uh, anticipate the government to push for an even greater number down the road? It's a bit early to tell. I think uh, the Labour Ministry and... Uh some researchers out there will be gathering testimony from business owners and from workers and trying to get a handle on you know are these is is this number going further enough to address these shortages or are businesses in certain sectors still reporting uh trouble in maintaining their operations because they can't keep enough workers on on site uh that'll remain to be seen but i i do get the sense that while these increases are quite drastic, when you look at just the past several years, I do get the sense that the the unit administration, uh, the unit administration is, is quite responsive to the needs of businesses. And I, I think if you listen to the the things that the this current government is saying, they're talking a lot about deregulation. They're talking about like uh, making giving businesses more space and allowing businesses a kind of greater say in, in setting policy and having uh, government bureaucrats do less of that. So I, I do think, if I had to guess, I would say that this is a step towards an even bigger expansion of this. But uh, the, the government, I think, is at the same time is not wanting to move too quickly. Right. Uh, another important development, as you mentioned, is the fact that they're looking to bring in more skilled labour as well, because they had been previously 
uh, criticism in Korea that there had been too much focus on bringing unskilled labour into the country and that's now time for Korea to implement policies to attract a more skilled foreign labour as well, right? Yeah, I think that that can become a, a trickier sort of a, a needle to thread. I mean, that's uh, in researching this article, I, I uh, looked a little bit at the case of Japan and, and their program uh, to this end is, is quite uh, deliberately focused on attracting higher skilled workers. That becomes a little bit difficult because then that raises the question of you are no longer simply bringing in people to do jobs that South Korean nationals do not want to do. Mm. Uh, and you're also raising the question of, well, if this is a very high-skilled job, then why are you seeking to uh, lower the compensation that somebody working this job might receive? And yeah, I guess the, you know, just the, the cold, hard fact of any job market is highly-skilled workers have more options. So they would ask, they would might ask if they were going to come here, would they, you know, would that include a path to permanent residency? Mm. Uh, would that include, you know, a broader range of rights and privileges that people on these unskilled labor visas typically do not enjoy? So that's a more complicated and, uh, you know, perhaps more challenging endeavor than simply bringing in workers to do lower skilled and lower paid jobs. Uh, I wonder if... That's perhaps a direction that Korea might look to in the future as the birth rate continues to decline. Uh, as the birth rate continues to decline, you know, that's an overall kind of reality. That's a reality that's going to affect every sector of the economy. Right. Uh, this is a country where a huge portion of the society goes to university and is very, very highly educated. And you have a lot of uh, science and, you know, kind of sort of STEM uh, people getting degrees in the STEM subjects. And so perhaps Korea is not, the, the shortages have yet to take effect in that area of the of the labor force. And sure. for the time being, it makes sense to focus more on unskilled labor. But uh, that, you know, that is a question that's going to come up. Right. So continued concerns that perhaps bring in skilled foreign workers could take away jobs uh, from the local uh, jobs, uh, local uh, workers as well. So that's one area of resistance. But uh, there are other concerns uh, that might lead to the government not moving too fast in increasing the number of skilled workers, right? For example, uh, some people question whether Korea is ready for such a change of bringing in uh, more foreign workers. That's a concern that people have expressed, right? I've heard that. And, you know, ready is a... Ready is a funny word when you ask that question. You know, what, what would it really mean to be ready? I mean, if you look at South Korea, this is a country that has changed very rapidly in, in a very short time. I think of all the countries in the world, Korea maybe has one of the strongest capacities to handle and to cope with change. And that could be economic or it could be technological. Uh, you know, I remember looking at my mother-in-law's mother so my, my, my wife's grandmother a few years ago and she's in her 90s and i remember just, just calculating her age and thinking what this country looked like when she came into it and what it looked like when she was about to leave it sure. and you know that's just a staggering amount of change uh but you, you know you do raise a good point we've definitely seen a lot of uh anti-immigrant backlash in a lot of parts of the world uh one kind of key factor that i think would come into play here is it would fall on the government to provide some 
some sense of dialogue with the citizenry as this is going on because you do not want your population to feel as though their home, the place that they've always lived, is changing drastically and they had no say in it. You know, you do want people in perhaps fading industrial towns and fishing villages in this country to, you know, if you are going to bring in a whole bunch of new people to live in their communities, you do want them to feel as though they are participating in that change. And this is not something that is just being uh, visited upon them while they are remaining passive. I'm an optimist when it comes to the the movement of people around the world. You know, I would be a hypocrite if I wasn't. Uh, I grew up in Canada and I've spent my adulthood in Korea. So, uh, you know, I have faith in humans' ability to (laughs) get along with people from different backgrounds and... The the hope, the optimistic scenario here is that as Korea expands this model of bringing in foreign workers, these workers can bring vitality to right. places that otherwise wouldn't enjoy it and can be a kind of plus for the people who have lived in those communities for a long time. And those workers can develop skills and earn money and get everything they want out of it. And it could end up being a kind of a win-win arrangement. Right, one perhaps representative policy that uh, we can talk about at the moment as well is the plan to bring in domestic workers from overseas. Uh, In your uh, article, recent article for the Nikkei, uh, you said the government of Seoul has announced plans to pave the way for South Korea to bring in domestic workers from elsewhere in Asia who will work for lower wages than those earned by locals. This is an issue we have covered on the show before, but can you remind us of the details of this plan and why it has caused controversy? This is directly connected to the, the birth rate and specifically the idea that the reason that South Korean families do not have more children is that it's simply too expensive to raise them. Uh, you basically require, if you want to live comfortably, you probably require both the both parents to be working and that leaves very little time to take care of kids. And so that leaves families to rely on either their relatives or having to like hire expensive private care. And so the, uh, the core of this policy decision is that if this kind of childcare were more affordable, then perhaps more families would have children. Uh, I don't think anybody, uh, is too put off by the logic of that. I think the the resistance to this policy came from the idea that this would open up a a path for possible exploitation of these women, and mm. the, the idea that uh, the government would be bringing in people to work in a kind of uh, substandard conditions, or perhaps be uh, vulnerable to different kinds of exploitation. The the sort of benchmark. Uh, countries for this kind of program are Hong Kong and Singapore, and there's been some some quite uh, dismaying documented cases of uh, women who work as domestic workers in these countries being exploited or suffering other kinds of abuse. Nobody wants that to happen, but... Uh, right. the- Although initially there were suggestions here in Korea that uh, these domestic foreign domestic workers could be paid less than the minimum wage. Yeah, and yeah. that raised concerns, right? Yes, and so the... The government has so clarified that while they would guarantee that these women were paid at least the minimum wage, they would be earning less than what the government identified as a kind of market rate. Uh, I think the minimum wage is something like uh, 9,200 won, and the government was saying that the kind of market rate for this kind of labor is about 15,000 won. So that would result in some, some substantive savings, but... 
We'll have to wait and see. I mean, uh, this obviously, I think because this involves the most intimate kind of labor in caring for children, mm. uh, that's why it has drawn a lot more scrutiny than, you know, a, a manufacturing or a fisheries job would. Sure. But bringing in foreign labor, uh, more foreign labor in Korea, especially uh, in jobs where they are paying minimum wage or close to minimum wage, that, are, that is raising concerns about exploitation, as you've mentioned. Do you think this could eventually even become an issue of uh, human rights in Korea? That's, this is something that uh, becomes raised uh, more and more as more foreign workers come to Korea, do you think? Well, human rights are, are tied directly into labor rights. Uh, you know, uh, human rights extend to the, you know, the domestic sphere and the, the public sphere as encompasses workplaces. You know, workers are entitled to safe conditions are entitled to uh, minimum wages and the the sort of dark side of these kinds of uh, foreign worker programs is that you know a, a more cynical interpretation of them is that they are a kind of conduit around uh, the more the stronger protections that citizen workers enjoy and that mm. they are you know I've spoken to in reporting this article I spoke to a bunch of advocates who have a kind of dark interpretation of the program and they, they say that the reason that it exists is because it exists to take advantage of people that are vulnerable uh there definitely are some frightening cases like that but it doesn't have to work that way you know it's i think like any other when this domestic worker program goes ahead it will need like any other kind of program to have rigorous enforcement of standards to pre to prevent and to deal with any kinds of human rights violations as you bring up. Right. So just to uh, mention as well, so the minimum wage in Korea is 9,000 621 this year, which is a little over seven US dollars, just to give a little bit of reference uh, for our listeners as well. Uh, on the other hand, I guess there's an argument that could be made that says even if foreign workers are paid less, they are making their choice to work in Korea. It's still their own choice, uh, which one should respect as well. What's your take on this free competition market theory based argument as well? I think there's there's definitely some merit to it. Uh, you know, these people do you know are voluntarily coming here, but you don't have to look far in in this planet to see people voluntarily do things that are really unfortunate, that are you know motivated by desperation and not motivated by a, a kind of a you know well calculated cost benefit analysis. Mm. And even if somebody makes the choice to come here, they still could end up in a dangerous or exploitative situation and so while i do think we need to honor and respect the right of these workers to choose their employment and we ought to create spaces for them if they do want to do that there also needs to be a kind of uh outside monitoring and mm. an enforcement of standards to protect the safety of everyone involved well, ultimately, many economists, experts and policymakers agree that something needs to be done to address uh, the declining birth rate and its impact on the labour market. And immigration, they're saying, is the answer. We've had several uh, experts on our show who have said that. So with that in mind, then, other than just increasing the opportunities for uh, foreigners with measures like giving more visas out, what more do you think needs to be done to make Korea uh, become more attractive and ultimately help Korea achieve this goal of bringing in more foreign nationals to help prop up the economy. Uh, what issues remain, do you think, that need to be addressed? 
I think the workers need access to different forms of support. I mean, we have these uh, in my in the reporting of my article. I visited a foreign worker support center in Weijiangbu, just north of Seoul, and. There are reports, I don't think anything is confirmed yet, but there are reports that their funding could be about to be reduced as a part of a broader belt-tightening measures by the current administration. I think it's really important for workers to have somewhere they can turn for help in navigating the labor laws and everything when it comes to adjusting to their lives here. A lot of them, you know, I think they have to pass a kind of basic Korean language proficiency test, but they are not fluent in Korean enough that they could do things like fill out government forms and, uh, you know, if they want to change jobs, if they want to change residencies, they run into a lot of issues there. I, in- I interviewed one uh, young man from Sri Lanka for this article, and when I asked him about potentially contentious relations between workers and their employers, he said that in his experience that almost always comes down to language barriers and just an inability to communicate. Mm. And so because it's probably unrealistic to expect every one of these workers to spend the amount of time it requires to become proficient in Korean. I I do think that there's a real role for support and a kind of liaising role between workers and their employers and workers in the government. Uh, I think that's a really important aspect when it comes to easing things for everyone, easing things for the communities that these workers are integrating and the people who are hiring them and the workers themselves. Right, we are out of time, so we are going to have to leave it there. But this is an issue that is going to continue uh, to be uh, one that is talked about here in Korea, as we said, especially with the population uh, situation. Uh, So perhaps we could speak to again in the future if you do continue to report on this uh, situation. In the meantime, uh, as we said, we'll leave it there. We're speaking to Stephen Borowicz from Nikkei Asia. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 134.03 points, or 5.66% on Monday, to close the day at 2,502.37. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also jumped, climbing 57.40 points, or 7.34%, to close at 839.45. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 25.11 against the U.S. dollar, Closing the day at 1,297.31. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now to take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. It is our daily segment, Korea Trending. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now, contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Dango. Okay, what do you have for us first today? Unfortunately, it seems like we have to bid adieu to a location full of history and memories. According to a local report on Saturday, Sangbong Bus Terminal, located in Jungnang District on the north side of the Han River, will close down on November 30th after 38 years of business. The terminal has been suffering from management difficulties. Right, so Sangbong Terminal is finally 
closing. Mm -hmm. uh, how bad was the financial situation for them to close down? The bus terminal once had an average of over 20,000 daily users. However, it has been experiencing difficulties as the number of users has gradually decreased over time. With the completion of the East Seoul terminal in 1990, the number of passengers was dispersed. As of October this year, the average daily number of users at Sangbong bus terminal was 26, and the total monthly revenue was only 836,336 won, and that's not even making 650 US dollars a month. Right, so listeners might wonder how it has stayed open this long, considering that there are only 26 passengers on average a day. Uh -huh. But the operator of the terminal had in fact been continuously requesting the city government to abolish its business license, right? Yeah, since 1997. Sinaju, a terminal operator, has requested the city government to abolish its business license more than 10 times. Due to Seoul City's continued refusal, the operator filed an administrative lawsuit in 2004. And after going through the first and second trials, the Supreme Court in December 2007 ruled that Seoul City must accept the abolition of business license. According to a company official, after the Supreme Court ruling, a decision was made to close the terminal in 2008, but the implementation was delayed due to several changes in the site development plan. Right, so essentially because there were long-standing plans for development in this area, the closure of the terminal had been delayed. Mm -hmm. But now that the closure date has been set and it's closing on November 30th, What's going to happen to the site next? First, a construction company will be selected within this year, and demolition of the building will begin in the first half of next year. A 49-story residential commercial complex building consisting of apartments and commercial and cultural facilities will be built on the terminal site. The completion date of reconstruction is expected to be 2029. Yes, yeah, so it's been a very long goodbye, but now it is really time to say goodbye to yeah. a little slice of the city's history. Mm -hmm. Let's continue on to our second story of the day. What do you have for us? It's a heartwarming, feel-good story. A Mexican-Korean volunteer organization provided relief supplies to residents of Acapulco, Mexico, who were devastated after the recent Category 5 storm, Hurricane Otis. According to the organization on Sunday local time, relief goods collected through donations from Mexican-Koreans were delivered to victims in Acapulco, Guerrero on previous day. Necessary items, including 2,100 one-liter bottles of water, cup noodles, and leggings were transported from Mexico City to the area affected by Hurricane Otis in a four-ton truck. Yes, this is indeed moving. Even a little help can be extremely helpful to those people who are trying to recover from any sort of natural disasters. And I'm mm -hmm. sure the residents uh, would have been very touched. Right. Residents seemingly showed their gratitude and waved the Taegukki, the national flag of South Korea. The head of the organization that had sent out the flags and supplies said that he praised the items can give hope and courage to those who are devastated. And the help does not end there. It has been reported that the Korean Association of Mexico has also begun accepting relief supplies to be sent to Acapulco, including hygiene products, clothing, clothings and groceries. Yes, the aftermath of the hurricane was incredibly dire. I believe a Category 5 storm is the strongest on the scale authorities use to uh, measure storms, right? It is. And what's surprising is how quickly it changed. You see, around 16 hours before Hurricane Otis hit, it was predicted to be a Category 1 storm, the lowest on the scale. Also, what's concerning is the livelihood of the residents there, as their income heavily depends on tourists. The area has the highest poverty rate among all 31 states in Mexico, excluding Mexico City. So it seems like the situation will get worse. 
Yes, we certainly hope the residents are able to get the supplies they desperately need. And it's great to hear that a, a Mexican-Korean organization is doing what it can to help mm-hmm. as well. Let's continue on to the final story of the day. What else do you have for us today? The international Isangyun competition ended in Tongyang, South Gyeongsang Province over the weekend. And on Saturday, the five prize winners of the week-long competition for young pianists were announced. According to the Tongyang International Music Foundation, 26-year-old pianist Jung Kyubin was announced as the first place winner. To tell you a little bit about the competition, the Unisang competition held every year to find bright talents in the music field in order, to, in order of cello, piano, and violin. That's great. Can you tell us? A little bit more about the winner. He first made his debut in Korea back in 2011 after winning the Iwa Kyunghyang competition at the Kumo Gifted Concert. After that, he won multiple awards in other competitions, including winning third place at the Edlingen International Piano Competition in 2014 and first place at the Tokyo Music Competition in 2016. At the competition in Tongyang, he beat the other four finalists who each performed a piano concerto with the Tongyang Festival Orchestra, showing Showcasing Bram's Piano Concerto Number no. 1 in D minor, Opus 15, for 45 minutes. Yes, this is one of the most iconic music competitions in Korea with a history of 20 years. Mm-hmm. So he must have been thrilled to hear the announcement. Right. Chung said that he was glad that he got the opportunity to play all the pieces he'd prepared and was honored to receive such an award and went on to say that he would never stop learning and loving music. Right, so Chang Kubin, another name to look out for from Korea's mm-hmm. classical music scene. That's all the time we have for today's Korea Trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Next, it's Monday's Sports Roundup, our weekly segment where we discuss the latest sporting headlines, results and stories. And bringing us the updates, it is our long-standing contributor, Yu Ji-ho, a sports reporter from the Yanat News Agency. Ji-ho, hello. It's great to have you on, as always. Yeah, it's great to be here, too. So we start with the Korean series, which is finally upon us. And the two sides that will be vying for Korea's top baseball title are the LG Twins and the KT Wiz. It will perhaps be more emotional for the Twins as they top the regular season, but also because they are in pursuit of their first championship since 1994. The Best of Seven series starts Tuesday evening in Seoul. Let's preview the matchup. Gio, what can you tell us? Yeah, it's a 6.30pm first pitch Tuesday evening. Uh, it's going to be, I guess, pretty cold, uh, but uh, it is what it is. Uh, they're playing a winner ball here out in Korea. The LG Twins and the KT Wiz, they're the top two teams in the regular season. The Twins finishing six and a half games ahead of the Wiz. They also won the season series 10-6. Uh, to six. Uh, The Wiz climbed from the last place in June to number two seed by the end of the season. The Twins had to buy to the Korean series. So they haven't played since uh, October 10th, actually. Uh, so they had all the time off to rest their, uh, I guess, banged up bodies and uh, get ready for the Korean series. The Wiz, in the meantime, knocked off to NC Dinos in a five-game series that ended Sunday. Uh, they won three, three, three straight games after losing the first two of that series. So like I said, the Twins are well-rested, uh, maybe a little bit rusty. Uh, you know, they had the best offense in the league with, uh, uh, as far as the hits and uh, batting average and run scored. Uh, you know, they can spray hits all over the field. But uh, when, it, when it, you know, coming off a long layoff like this, uh, usually the hitters struggle, tend to struggle in the early going. 
the Warriors have a deeper starting rotation led by uh, William Cuevas, uh, Wes Benjamin, and Ko Young-pyo, who will start Game 1 to, uh, on Tuesday. Plus, they have a lockdown bullpen that has been basically unhittable so far this postseason. So I think it should be a really fun matchup. Uh, the two best teams. It's been a few years since uh, we had the two best regular season teams colliding in the Korean series. And like I said, the Twins are uh, chasing their first title in 29 years. The Wiz going after the second title in only three years. They mm. won it back in 2021. So, Ko Young-pyo up against uh, uh, Casey Kelly for the Twins. Uh, the pitching matchup uh, at uh, Champion Stadium on Tuesday night. Right, going by the fact that the Twins came out on top in the regular season, they are the favourites to win on paper, right? The weight mm-hmm. of history, I'm sure, will be weighing heavy on their shoulders as well. A 29-year wait. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, you know, it's not, you know, if you compare to, let's say, the World Series champions, the Texas Rangers, they won their first title in their season number 63. And just on Sunday, Hanshin Tigers won their first Japan, uh, Japan Series title since 1985. Mm. So compared to those two leagues, you know, 29 <laughs> years, maybe, you know, it's not that long, right? But uh, I'm not sure the Twins were... fans will feel that way. Oh, no, they don't feel <laughs> that way at all. I mean, it's plenty long enough. Uh, and then this is a fan base that's pretty aggrieved. Uh, you know, they've they've got a really passionate, uh, really uh, a strong fan base. But they're, all, again, they're, they're really uh, eager to see the drought end uh, at some point, uh, you know, hopefully for them this year. It'll be fascinating to watch. If it's a sweep by either side, it could end by Saturday, but that likely won't be the case, so we'll see where we are this time next week. Sticking with baseball, we're heading to North America now, where they wrapped up the World Series last week, as you mentioned, but the end-of-season awards have been announced, and a Korean player has taken one of the top honours. The San Diego Padres infielder Kim Ha-sung became the first Korean player to win a gold glove in Major League Baseball. He won the award at the utility spot thanks to his defensive versatility. Gio, it's an incredible accomplishment and fully deserved, right? Oh, absolutely. And he's also the first Asian-born infielder to win a gold glove. We've had uh, you know, outfielders from Japan win a gold glove, but uh, he's the first Asian infielder to win it. And Kim beat out a couple of really, really good, great defenders, uh, Mookie Betts and Tommy Edmund, who's actually he's, uh, Kim, Kim Ha-sung's double play partner for Team Korea, at the World Baseball Classic, with Edmund being half Korean. And Kim was also a uh, finalist at second base position, but lost out there. You know, Kim, you can play all over the field, play 100 games at second base uh, after moving from shortstop position following the Padres signing of Alexander Bogarts. But also, Kim played 32 games at third base and 20 games at shortstop. And he was a, a finalist for the Gold Glove at shortstop last year. Didn't win it, uh, but uh, this year... He was nominated. He was a finalist at two different spots and winning it at utility spot, which was added last year to honor uh, defensive versatility in Major League Baseball. And the winners were determined by votes from 30 MLB managers and up to six coaches from each team, but they could only vote from players from a team other than their own club. And those votes comprise 75 percent. The other 25 percent, a defensive index by the uh, Society of American Baseball Research. So a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, eye tests plus uh, some, you know, hard, cold numbers kind of co- being combined to determine the winners. And if you look at, kind of look at deeper numbers that Kim put up, his numbers went down a little bit in the second half. Mm. But I think he had a lot of support from opposing managers and coaches just because he made so many highlight real worthy plays on the field. Right. He's been a really popular player, both for the Padres and the, the league. It's 
it kind of reminds me of Son Heung-min a bit about his personality as well as his ability on the field that's uh, one fans over so it's great to see him be recognized in this way and hopefully there's more to come as well let's uh, quickly head over to football as well because there was some silverware that was won as well over the weekend the Pohang Steelers defeated their K-League rivals Chambuk Hyundai Motors 4-2 for the FA Cup title on Saturday this is their first FA Cup title in 10 years and fifth overall tied for the most in tournament history. And they did it in dramatic fashion, needing a big second-half rally for this victory, right? Right. You know, they were down 2-1 to one not so long after the restart, but then they scored three unanswered goals in the second half to stun Jumbuk, who were going for their second straight FA Cup title. And Pohang now with five FA Cups, the tie with Jumbuk and Suwon Samsung Blue Wings for the most in the tournament history. And, of course, the FA Cup is the largest national football tournament, uh, bringing all the professional and amateur clubs uh, and then determining the winner toward the end of the year. Uh, Pohang also qualified for the 2024-2025 uh, Asian Football Confederation Champions League Elite Tournament as the FA Cup winner. So Chumbuk broke a 1-1 tie with Gustavo's penalty about six minutes into the second half, but it was Pohang all the way for the rest of the match. Uh, Zeka scoring on 74 minutes. Kim Jong-woo scoring some four minutes later to put Pohang ahead for good. And he was named the tournament MVP later on. And Hong Yun-sang rounding out the scoring during added time. So first trophy for Pohang coach Kim Ji-dong, who took over the team back in 2019. Uh, he's been long known as a player's coach with a really good soft leadership skills. He has taken some flag over the years for not being a hard-nosed kind of a disciplinarian or authoritarian figure like maybe some other coaches, but you know, he proved his uh, detractors wrong this time with this trophy. Right, indeed. So congratulations to Kim and to Pohang. Finally, let's get one more quick football update because Korea just announced their roster for the upcoming World Cup qualifying matches against Singapore and China. So, Jiho, who made the cut and which names stand out? Yeah, so it's basically the same team that defeated Tunisia 4-0 and Vietnam 6-0 in friendly matches last month. Uh, very few changes. In fact, uh, defender Kim Ju-sung being dropped and third-string goalkeeper Kim Ju-hong being replaced by Song Bong-gun. Uh, those are the only changes for, the, for this year's, uh, for this iteration of the team. So usual suspects are back, uh, like Son Heung-min, Hwang Hee-chan, and Lee Gang-in, who actually scored his first Champions League goal and also his first French League goal for PSG in recent days. So those guys are in good form coming into the World Cup qualifiers. Korea will play Singapore in Seoul on November 16th and then travel to China to play China on November 21st. So on paper, Korea, I think, should win those matches pretty easily. Uh, they won three in a row uh, under uh, Jürgen Klinsmann. Uh, they should really use these matches to prepare themselves for the Asian Cup coming up in January in Qatar. OK, that's all for our sports roundup. Jiho, as always, thank you for the updates and we'll talk to you again soon. OK, thanks for having me. I'm physicist Philip Kim of Harvard University. Winner of the Benjamin Franklin Medal, you are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's time for our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports 
coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. Okay, so what do you have for us first today? Well, our listeners who are interested in esports will know this, but this year's League of Legends World Championship Finals will be held in Seoul's Gochok Skydome on November 19th. It is a huge event to put things into perspective. 74 million viewers saw the online stream for the finals in 2021. And it looks like two worlds are colliding, esports and K-pop. That's because the K-pop girl group New Jeans will be kicking off the opening ceremony of the finals. That's what Pyo Kyung Min's article in the culture section of the Korea Times is about. Right, and the World Championships and New Jeans, they have collaborated together, right? Yes, they have. Last month, the group released a song called Gods. It is the official theme song for this year's World Championship. They will perform that track at the opening ceremony. In less than a month, the music video for Gods racked up over 30 million views online, and it was in the US Billboard Global chart for three consecutive weeks. So I would say it has been pretty <laughs> successful so far. All the theme songs feel epic, and Gods is no exception. These are the type of tracks you should have on your workout playlists. Yes, and with this upcoming performance, I believe New Jeans, who has already broken numerous records mm. since their debut last year, they'll be adding another record to their name, right? You are correct. This would be the first time for a K-pop group to headline the opening ceremony, which is actually a fact in the article that surprised me. Mm. In the past, renowned artists such as Imagine Dragons and Lil Nas X headlined the finals. Yes, it seems like it's about time, really, <laughs> considering yes. how big esports is in right. Korea. Uh, so yes, yeah, so that is uh, going to be a big performance that people will be looking out for. I believe it will be their first live performance of the song as well. Mm. Okay, let's continue on. What else have you found in tomorrow's newspapers? I have chosen Hwan dong article in the culture section of the Korea Herald. It's about the annual Desan Literary Awards. It is one of the most prestigious literary awards in South Korea and prizes that are awarded to selected works in five categories, poetry, novel, drama, literary criticism and translation. But the drama and literary criticism categories alternate each year. Mm. Well, the article mentions that this year's winners have been announced. Okay, so can you walk us through who the winners were? For poetry, poet Kim Ki-tek won the, A Knife Called Sickle. The theme is about pursuing a better life. For the Best Novel Award, Hyung Ki-young's O Jeju grabbed the top prize. It revolves around the myths and tales surrounding Jeju Island. That actually interests me a lot. Mm. Then the article says that Yi Yang-gu's No Winner grabbed the Best Drama Work Award for exploring social issues and censorship. And the Best Translated Work was awarded to Matthias Augustine and Kyung Yee Park for the German version of Chum Myung Kwan's novel The Whale. Oh, interesting. The English version, of course, was shortlisted for the uh, International Booker Prize right. this year. But it's the German version yes. that won the award uh, at the Tezhan Awards this year. Then that's interesting. Uh, what prizes do the award winners receive? Roughly 38,000 US dollars each. And for the works that are in Korean, they will be translated into other languages and published overseas. Mm. They will be able to pick up their awards in person at the awards ceremony, which will be held on November 23rd in Seoul. Okay, so they're going to be translated as well. That's yes. interesting. So perhaps we'll get to see some of these works uh, reviewed on our Career Book Club mm. segment uh, sometime in the future as well. That's where we wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. We wrap up our show there. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.
내가 사랑하는 사람 정호승 The people I love by 정호승 나는 그늘이 없는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다 나는 그늘을 사랑하지 않는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다 나는 한 그루 나무의 그늘이 된 사람을 사랑한다 I do not love people who have no shadows I do not love people who do not love shadows I love people who have become the shade beneath a tree 햇빛도 그늘이 있어야 맑고 눈이 부시다 나무 그늘에 앉아 나뭇잎 사이로 반짝이는 햇살을 바라보면 세상은 그 얼마나 아름다운가 Sunlight too needs shade to shine bright and dazzle the eyes Sitting in the shade of a tree and watching the sunlight sparkling between the leaves How beautiful the world is then 눈물이 없는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다 나는 눈물을 사랑하지 않는 사람을 사랑하지 않는다 나는 한 방울 눈물이 된 사람을 사랑한다 I do not love people who have no tears I do not love people who do not love tears I love people who have become one teardrop 기쁨도 눈물이 없으면 기쁨이 아니다 사랑도 눈물 없는 사랑이 어디 있는가 나무 그늘에 앉아 다른 사람의 눈물을 닦아주는 사람의 모습은 그 얼마나 고요한 아름다움인가 Joy too is no joy without tears And is there ever love without tears? The sight of someone sitting in the shade of a tree Wiping away another's tears What serene beauty that is 